0: Welcome to the Megalithic Marvels podcast. I am your host, D. Olson. Thank you for joining me on my journey of reconstructing the prehistoric past. In this first ever episode, I feature an interview that I did back in 2018 with Gary Wayne, author of the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. Gary breaks down the origins of the mysterious Nephilim giants their physical traits, their tribes, and much more in part one of this interview. But first, I wanna give you two quick announcements. Check out my latest video series on YouTube called 15 Photos Mainstream Egyptology Would Rather You Not See. In this series, I show you 15 incredible photos that pose a problem To mainstream Egyptology's narrative that the dynastic Egyptians created massive, multi-ton, precision-cut superstructures with archaic chisels, hammers, sleds, and ramps. Just search for Megalithic Marvels on YouTube or click the link in the show notes. Also, if you are on Instagram... Join the 60,000-plus others and follow megalithic marvels to see the most dynamic photos and videos available of the world's greatest megaliths, ancient sites, and hybrid humanoids. I recently featured some very rare photos and video of China's massive megaliths hidden away in the Yangshan quarry. Just search for megalithic marvels on Instagram, or click the link in the show notes. Well, let's get to part one of my interview with Gary Wayne now. D. Olson of megalithicmarvels.com here, and I am honored to be interviewing someone who was just listed as one of our top researchers to follow in 2018 author of The Genesis 6 Conspiracy, Gary Wayne. Gary, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Well, so happy to be back to do another interview with you and looking forward to the show and thinking that uh, the audience is going to really like what we're going to talk about today.
0: Yeah, I'm super excited. And in doing this interview, Gary, I don't want to assume that everyone watching saw our interview last year or even has a broad understanding regarding giants of antiquity Therefore, I want to start at the very beginning uh, by reading one of the most famous Bible scriptures regarding giants, Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. And here's what it says. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Quite a fantastic piece of scripture and uh, Gary, as you so clearly outline in your book, can you please present your case as to how these giants of Genesis could not have just been tall men that came from the sons of Seth copulating with the daughters of Cain?
1: Yeah, and that is obviously two ways of people will interpret that verse: is they are, you know, the descendants of Seth or. These are angels or beings from heaven or sons of God, depending on how you want to look at that. And so if you have humans mating with humans, then you're not going to produce something completely different. So the word giant doesn't uh, mean a foot taller or six inches taller, you know, Saul was like considered tall, six inches taller or head and shoulders above, but that wasn't considered a giant. And uh, so these were monstrous hybrid beings between the sons of God, who I understand as the uh, angels from heaven and the watchers, as it's noted and named in the book of Enoch but certainly the Seraphim angels, which is key to understanding um, you know, what they looked like. But these were giants, and we look at in even after the flood, uh, way after the beginning of the creation of these giants and the original ones, we have the Israelites talking about seeing the Anakim. And the Anakim are descendants of giants, which is, uh, goes back to the Hebrew word Nephilim, which is what a lot of people will call the giants uh, because uh, that's sort of the Hebrew term for them. And the Anakim is a division of the, the Nephilim and are also known as Rephaim, and they all connect back to the Nephilim. And so when we look at what the Israelites said about these Anakim is, is that they appeared as insects, In comparison. So, this is not something that's a a foot taller or two feet taller, but significantly taller. And in the book of Amos, I think it's in 2 1, it refers to. The Amorites, which are hybrids who married into the Rephaim and the Anakim in the Promised Land, so a little bit more diluted, they were considered as tall as the cedars of Lebanon. And the cedars of Lebanon were the giant trees, which is why the allegory is so important here. And they were the giant woods that were used for construction and beams and all of the great temples and buildings and construction that they were doing in the uh, ancient world. And they grew somewhere between 36 and 40 feet. Some some people say 50 feet. And so when we look at these two sort of comparisons, and maybe a little bit later in the show we'll get into a couple of famous giants in the Bible, we understand that they were very, very large and so significantly larger than humans. And a lot of people believe that they were somewhere between 20 and 40 feet tall. That's seemingly the general consensus of the original ones, although in the Bible we don't get um, quite that tall of a, a giant. But they were... You know, if we look at, let's say, Goliath, for example, he was uh, six cubits in a span. So if you use a common cubit, which is 18 inches, that would put him at 9.9 inches. I make the case in my book, though, that he was a king, as all of the Nephilim were kings, and they usurped the kingship. So they would have used a royal span, just as they would have used in the building of the royal megaliths, which is closer to 21 inches. That now makes him about 11 feet, 3 inches. So now we're talking something that's twice as tall or more than the tallest of the Israelites. Now, not only were they just tall, they were broad. And you don't get it this in the Bible, but you will get a sense of it when I talk a little bit more about Og. But the average height of a, to a width ratio of a human is about 3 to 1 but on a Nephilim, they're thought to be two to one, so extremely wide. So that's why when Og has a bed that was made of iron, it's made of iron because wood would not hold his weight. So now you're talking about beings that are somewhere between 11 and 15 feet tall, because again, if you use a royal cubit on the bed size for Og, it's gonna come close to 16 feet. So that's going to put him 14 or 15 feet. Worst case, 12 to 13 on the common cubit style. that's going to put him somewhere between, say, 1,500 and 2,000 pounds. So we're talking a monstrous uh, being. So this is something that, going back to the original point, to quickly summarize it, could not be the offspring of human versus human. And so when we look at who these sons of God are, we need to look at Old Testament references as opposed to New Testament references, because this is an Old Testament story, and sons of God in the New Testament is basically referring to the New Covenant where Christians are grafted in after Pentecost to the New Covenant. And they're adopted into it as brothers, as sons of God, even though they have human fathers which is very important to understand. There's a whole series of adoption and uh, understanding of this as an allegory, but when we look at the offspring of these giants, they're not the offspring of human fathers. They're the offspring of the sons of God, which is also a term used in the book of Job. And those are considered to be angels because they're the morning stars in 34 or 38, 4 to 7, you know, that sang in harmony at the creation. And these are the ones who present themselves for God. And we can dig into that a little bit deeper, um, if if you like. But just making the case for that these could not have been, in my opinion, the offspring of human and a human. If you look at in the, let's say, in, and I use the uh, in my book, the New International Version, where it'll say angels in Job 1, 6, 2, 1, and 34, or 38, 4 to 7. And it'll have an annotation and it'll say Hebrew for sons of God. But if you go to the King James Version, it will say sons of God, not angel. And if you go to other versions, it might say heavenly beings or the heavenly host or the heavenly countenance. There's many different sort of translations of what they're talking about. Um, but it doesn't specifically say angel there and where it does in the old testament that comes from the hebrew word Malach, 4397 but it means heavenly host right um, and angels of spirit and and of fire and again as we if we w- want to understand what these nephilim looked like we need to understand these angelic terms particularly as it goes back to the fiery angels called seraphim of isaiah um, 6. Um, because these are fiery serpent-like uh, beings, and so we also have uh, other references to angels uh, that are standing um, <clears throat> in front of the heavenly council of God. And you know, you look at First Kings; they're called the host of heaven that stand around God. And in Job, these sons of God are going to present themselves. Before God, to the throne of God. So again, we have a direct connection. We hear about this assembly of God in Psalms eighty-nine five to seven. Assembly of the holy ones in Jeremiah twenty-three verses eighteen and twenty-two, called the councils of God. And then there's an interesting term in Psalms twenty-nine one, where it just calls the mighty, and the reference is to H eleven twenty-one back to Hebrew, which is son, and another reference back to. Uh, 410-L, so sons of God again. So I think everything from an Old Testament perspective is pointing to these were supernatural beings. And when we look at the word Nephilim and understand that these were the seraphim and understand when we say seraph, that would be the same as seraphim. I am would be ones. I am and Nephilim would be ones as the suffix. But that goes back to the word nephil, sort of transliterated into English as N-P-H-I-L, which means, and that's number 5303, that means uh, giants and the Nephilim. But the root word goes back to 5307, which is nephal, which means to fall or to lie prostate. So if you connect that as these uh, tribe of giants, that connect to the word fall and add I am ones, you have the fallen ones, which refers back to the sons of God, who most refer to as the rebellious angels or the fallen angels. So you have a direct connection in pretty much all of the different meanings to have a pretty safe conclusion that these were sons of God that produced, uh, produced the mighty ones of old, the gibberim, as they're also known as. Not that gibberim always means giant, but in this case it certainly does.
0: So very interesting. You mentioned that the Nephilim were probably created sometime around 3500 or 3400 BC, I believe. Uh, please share a little bit about how you arrived at that timeline.
1: Yeah, basically, I arrive at it two different ways. Is we know from the book of Enoch that uh, he he states, uh, if that book is legitimate, and it does run quite closely to scripture. There's a few, er, you know, corruptions in there, but it's a fairly reliable source. I think as a companion source, it says that the watchers went to the sons or the the human females in the generation of Jared, and in the Bible we understand that this narrative is taking place in the time of Noah, in the days of Noah. Well, Jared and Noah, even though there's a couple generations apart, Noah was still alive while Jared was still alive. So, and so you start to narrow it down into that sort of time frame as to uh, when that would have been. And if you do a calculation down from Adam to Jared being born, born, that's about 460 years. And then uh, you have Noah being born about a 1,000 years, 1,050 years. So somewhere between that point between uh, Jared and Noah, these uh, giants are created. And so the other way to look at it is now when do we start counting from? That And that's really one of the keys. And typically most people will use the year about 4,000. Typically, though, that year comes. Comes out of secret societies and polytheism for the year Anaalusis for when um, they say that uh, Satan was expelled from heaven. But if I look at taking some firm dates out of the Bible, and some of those firm dates would be the dispersion of the Northern Kingdom in about 721 BC, and match that up with the dispersion of Judah in about 580. 580- 7 BCE, and if I didn't say 720 BC the first time, this is um, make sure that I've said that for accuracy, and then work that genealogy back to the building of the temple and the time of Solomon, and then work in the 400 years that it has between then and the Exodus, and then work the genealogies back. I get somewhere around 4250. BCE or BC for the time of Adam being born and that could be out a few years this way or that way a little bit and then I work forward between that thousand and eight hundred years and say somewhere 32 to 3500 BC one would expect that these giants were born maybe a little later but not a whole bunch later.
0: Incredible. Uh, in your book, you quote the, I believe it's called the Kebra and the Gast, which talks about how all the originating Nephilim mothers died for their physiology could not cope with such monsters. So uh, talk about how these Nephilim newborns were basically delivered to some form of barbaric cesarean birth, correct?
1: Yeah. So when we understand that these are giants to be born, I mean, so these are going to be giant babies and there's no way and and a lot of people will come to me and say well there's no way humans could you know bear out you know a giant and i I agree with that 100 percent. so as it got to the point where they had to deliver the child they made a choice between the mothers and the to-be-born demigods and they did like a cesarean Births letting open the bellies, killing the original mothers in favor of the demigods that were going to be the new rulers on the earth, the new gods on the earth, the new demigods on the earth. So this was a almost like a pagan polytheist blood ritual sacrifice to the fathers in favor of the of the offspring.
0: It's truly amazing. <laughs> mind blowing to think about let's talk about um the size of these giants their traits i know you talked about that a little bit uh, there's a handful of scriptures that speak of the genetic anomalies of these giants um you know and how they had six digits um numbers chapter 13 uh, one of the other famous scriptures regarding giants uh states that it's uh, numbers 13 33 it says there we saw the giants And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. So this scripture, as you referenced earlier, is speaking to the enormous size of these giants. Um, And in your book, you ask the question, if fallen angels were able to pass on their immortal spirit to their offspring, then what other superhuman traits were they able to equip the new race of people with? Uh, Answer this question for us. Yeah, so
1: let's begin with what they would have looked like in terms of being uh, inherited uh, from the parents and then expand into perhaps what uh, other traits they, they might have had. So when we look at the, the fathers, the watchers, the seraphim angels, they had the face of a snake. They were the fiery serpents. And uh, you know we get that uh, also cross-referenced in um, uh, in uh, numbers where it has the uh, pole that's going to have the snake put on top to protect the Israelites from the uh, the venomous snakes. And those snakes are all called the cache, except for the one that goes on top of the pole. When it goes back to Hebrew, it's not a cache; it's a seraphim. And again, in Deuteronomy, we get another reference of these fiery serpents uh, where the word goes back, not to Nakash, but to Seraphim. So everything links just as Lucifer or Satan is, um, a dragon and a serpent. And so you put that together with the understanding that you put wings on a serpent and you have a dragon. And in antiquity, serpents and dragons were known as the same being. And that's why the gods are all shown as serpents and and dragons, whether or not it's a plume serpent, or it's a naga, or it's a seraphim. These are all the same gods around the earth. And as it turns out, there's descriptions coming out of, uh, let's say, Atlantean mythology and out of uh, Central American mythology, uh, connecting back to Atlantis uh, out of the uh, Central American ones where they had the face of a viper so they had the same face as uh, their their parents and if you look at Akhenaten out of a King Tut museum and this is circa 1250 BC uh, although some people will push that chronology back to 1400 actually, I would prefer the 1400, but 1250 seems to be the standard secular chronology for Akhenaten. So this is over 2000 years from when these beings were originally created. And if you look at him, he's got this extended chin, very high cheekbones, big slanted eyes, and this elongated conical skull. And so he still has this viper look. 2000 years later, it's starting to dissipate. So one wonders how frightening they were to look at in the beginning. And they were known in Sumeria and fairy lore and around the world as the shining ones because their eyes shone. And their voices were so strong that it was like, as they were described in mythology, as Atlas bellowing from you know, the, the, the mountains, uh, the whole of a, uh, of a volcano and just, just thundering voices. And Joseph, Josephus describes them as a threat to all of the senses, not only to look at the sound, but they had this strong, strong sort of smell about them as well that was distinct and, and, and different. And that Josephus even puts into the record that they had their bone structure on display in museums, even up to his time, which he would have lived somewhere between, you know, say about 30 uh, AD and about 100 and was captured by the Romans and wrote the Israeli history so it wouldn't be lost to the world after the diaspora of the Jewish people by the Romans. And that these bones were of a completely different bioengineering than that of humans, that they were a wonder to look at. And so we're starting to see a significant picture of not only large, but completely different. And for the most part, although those other accounts around the world, they would have different colors of skin. Certainly from the Middle East, uh, we have only a pale white skin color coming out. And they would have either red hair and hazel eyes which is predominant with the Celtic Tuatha-Denon and the North American uh, discoveries of giants and the South American discoveries of giants, which are related also to the Picts, which I know the the, the the Peru skulls are being linked back to more Scottish and also to the Middle East, and that's where you get that connection because that was also another tribe of the Tuatha-Denon coming out of Scythia. And the blonde hair and blue-eyed ones that went up to, say, Sweden, Norway, Russia, and into that area. So they had basically two, two-color hairs. And so these were very, very different-looking uh, beings, and they're a hybrid being, of course. We also get out of... The Bible that they were great warriors. They were men of renown, men of fame. And if you take uh, uh, where it says um, they were mighty ones, which is Gibran and, and, and um, men of, of renown, that goes back to Seth. And Seth is a name of fame and renown and infamy and of being leaders. And so they were warrior leaders of the antediluvian epoch, which meant they were very skillful, not only from strength, but from a dexterity perspective. And we understand, you know, in Jewish legend and in Greek mythology that they were very dexterous, they were very quick quick of feet, they were very, very quick with their hands. So they were huge, strong, fast, nimble individuals and frightening to look at. And they shone. <laughs> So, I mean, these, these traits, so these are the traits that we know of. So now we wonder what else did they inherit from these beings that could take a form in the spiritual world to be able to have sex with human females um, to pass on their DNA and their immortal spirit. And so that opens up a whole possibility and the rest now becomes a bit of speculation because we don't really know and we don't have any strong scriptural references to what other traits they had other than some of the meanings of the name that they were very, very adept at reading the soil in one of the names and, you know, things like that, but nothing that's really going to give us uh, like a supernatural sort of Understanding, but typically the biggest thing is is that they had a changeling capability, as what the angels would have had, and that they seemingly have the ability to go through portals uh, and into other worlds. And again, that is all speculation. I have to tell you that right up front. But those would be some of those those other traits. Um, and so, whether or not they had telepathy or anything like that, again, that is all sort of. Uh, legend and stuff like that so but all of that i think is in play when we're talking about these supernatural type of of beings right
0: yeah you referenced the uh first century jewish historian josephus um who has many quotes in his writings about giants and and since he mentioned them i'll read one of them that you referenced he says uh there were till then left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing, the bones of these men are still shown to this very day, unlike to any credible relations of other men. That's astonishing.
1: It is. And then when we look at those elongated skulls, I mean, those don't look human. And of course, a lot of people will say that you can create that e- that elongated skull just by binding in childhood. And I think that happened a lot. I think they wanted to emulate their kings and their demigods, and these Nephilim all around the world usurped the kingships, both before and after the flood. But what you can't do with that binding is is create more volume, which these things are significantly bigger than the human cranium. So they had either a larger brain capacity, or just larger space and more like a dinosaur you can pick your poison on that one but they were able to rule the world and start dynasties after the floods so these things were not human looking like and so one would presume that you know uh, a changeling capability would have helped them fit in more um And also I think over time with the intermarriage with humans, I think they lost those traits over time. So you can go either way. I'm more they lost the traits over time. I think they were accepted as the tyrants of old and they didn't care what they looked like. And they used that as sort of a superior understanding because you have all the snake imagery around kingships and gods all over the world. That's inexplicable unless you understand that the gods look like serpents and so did the original demigod kings.
0: Fantastic. Um, Let's talk about the giants in relation to the flood and Noah. You write in your book uh, about how Noah had an intriguing relationship with the Nephilim of his day. Um, If you could please paint a picture for us what uh, Noah's relationship with these demigods might have been like.
1: Well, it would have been uh, very, very testy. Uh, and I can't imagine the courage it would have taken for Noah uh, to stand up against these giants. And we do know about, there was, you know, a hundred years between um, Noah being sort of selected and the ark being finished and him walking onto the ark when he's 600. And his commission seems to begin... Um, when he's about 598 years old and he starts to have his children. Um, but, of course, there's another 500 years before that, and then we talked about that window. And, Jesus, and Noah was the only one who walked with God at that point in time. So whether or not that was at the point in the flood or it was a diminishing number over those 500 years, he would have spoken against these giants on an ongoing basis. And in other accounts that provide detail about Noah's account is is he pushed them so often and so hard that not only the giants but the rest of the people, they didn't want to see Noah. They were tired of him and they were threatening to kill him all of the time. And so he actually had to flee at some point in time, according to these other accounts, and also in the Jewish legends, that uh, for his life and his safety, um, because they were... They were rejecting his word, and they didn't want to hear it because he was talking in the face of these demigods. And again, according to the legend uh, from all these different accounts, is is they that what they were saying is you are a false prophet. And of course, death would come to a false prophet. And they they said he was a false prophet because he wasn't an angel. And God would send an angel to demigods with the message, not a human. And that's how far astray and away from God that. The Nephilim and their mystical religions were that they had deceived themselves so much that, you know, the commission of humankind, as I explain in my book, is to be raised above angels in the future world. So a human delivering that message would be perfect.
0: And um, you talk about in your book how it's no coincidence that the Nephilim giants are introduced in scripture right before the flood narrative. If you could uh, make a quick connection of these hybrid giants to why God sends the flood.
1: Yeah, so if you, when you read about the giants in Genesis 6, it's a very short narrative. And then it goes immediately into the flood story for the next uh, couple of uh, chapters. And there is nothing really disconnecting the story of the creation of the giants with the flood story. It's one narrative. And so I think what we're being told in, in that account is, is that the world had become corrupt with violence, but it was corrupted even more so, and that the giants are the root cause of the corruption that overcame the antediluvian world that brings about the first apocalypse by water. And so the corruption on creating the giants is, would, would have been a violation against the laws of creation. And what is going on is that there is an immortal spirit of God being put into the physical realm, into a physical body, creating a physical God. And so God also steps in in Genesis 6, limiting all life to 120 years of human and human hybrid forms. And this will have a consequence for the descendants of uh, Seth as well, and all life starts from thereafter to... Uh, go to 120 years. It takes a few generations to happen, and these beings that lived previously until the time of the flood um, obviously um, had longer lives than that, and even Noah lives to be 950 and lives 350 years after the flood. So this takes a little bit of time, and you see that descending, um, uh, lowering of the age limit with the descendants thereafter, and this immortal spirit goes into these Nephilim and... Because God has sent this edict, what happens is, is the body will die because it's part of the physical world and it doesn't have an access to the tree of life because Garden of Eden is being, is taken away and being protected by cherubim. And so the body will die or they will commit suicide because they're in so much pain. But the spirit's not permitted to go to sleep. And these are the spirits that Jesus talks about in the New Testament that are thirsting for bodies to possess. These are the devils, and if you take that back, it'll it'll go back to Greek as a daemon and, and evil spirits. And the spirits aren't permitted into heaven, and they're not permitted to sleep. They're sentenced to roam the earth. And so we have this all of this going on as the preamble to the flood story. And this is also, I think, a foreshadow or a connection to that not only was there are corruption with the creation of the Nephilim, I think the whole world had become corrupted. And in research that I link in from around, um, it's and I connect that with what it says in the Bible, where it says the whole earth was corrupt. But if you look at other accounts from other mythologies and religions, you have centaurs, and you have... Uh, elephant people, and you have lion people, and you have all sorts of crossbreeding and DNA manipulation, it seems, of animals in the antediluvian world. And I think this expanded to the plants and the genomes in the plants as well, that I think they had a level of technology that is what we have today or greater which is why Jesus has a reference that a sign for the end times will be like the days of Noah, and if our technology and understanding is where it is at today, then that means they were more advanced because we're not in the end time quite yet. So they had this high level to corrupt the whole world. And that's why I think God called the animals to the ark, uh, not only because he can, but he knew which ones were not infected with these corruptions to replenish the earth, and give uh, the earth a new chance with all new uncorrupted plants, and with a strain uncorrupted, and did not intermarry with uh, the the Nephilim, uh, you know, born of the sons of angels, because as we're told in other accounts, that there's a lot of crossbreeding going on between the two lineages of Cain and Seth, and Nephilim.
0: I hope you enjoyed part one of this interview. Be looking for part two coming soon. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening and give me a good rating on iTunes if you enjoyed it. Thanks again for joining me. And until next time, keep exploring.